I'm Brian Anderson. You're listening to California Nation. This week on the show, we're bringing you another candidate conversation as part of our ongoing efforts to inform voters of which Democratic candidates they can choose to support ahead of California's March 3rd, 2020 primary. Voting begins on February 3rd. So this week, we sit down with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, where I recently caught up with him in Reno, Nevada, to hear about his California ties, his plans to woo voters in the Golden State, and his messaging on electability ahead of the 2020 election. All right, here's the show. We are not going to have a circus here. But we just left pleasure for paradise. Can you please hug me? (laughs) Do not worry, Dutch is not here today. We, We clearly learned our lesson. These are not ordinary times. And this will not be an ordinary election. You're listening to California Nation. I'm your host, Brian Anderson. Sitting down with me now is New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Mr. Booker, thanks for coming on the show. It's so, so good to be on the show. Thank you for having me. So I've got to ask right out of the gate. We're in Nevada, which is just a a few miles short in Reno from California. What personal ties do you have to California? It's my understanding you went to college there. Well, much more than that. I mean, my mom uh, was raised in Los Angeles. She went to Manual Arts High School. She's got much to my chagrin as a Stanford guy. She did graduate work at USC. Uh, my family, cousins, grandparents, uh, all over the state. So it's been a state that's been the second home for me uh, since I was a, a little, little kid. And on top of all of that, uh, going to Stanford, be, serving on the board of Stanford, has just been a, an amazing institution in my life. It's given me so much. So I know the Bay Area, I know Southern California. I really feel connected there. And family in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, I was just there with, for the holidays. I, I just spent Christmas uh, uh, in Los Angeles, which is what I've done, uh, one of the regular places we go to just relax and, and spend time with family. And we see California's not getting as much national attention. It's kind of in its own little West Coast pocket, if you will. What What do you think that people at the national level in D.C. don't understand about California? If it was an economy into its own, it would be one of the top economies on the planet Earth. It is extraordinarily diverse. Um, you know, people think of San Francisco area as Northern California. The reality is you could drive six, nine hours north and still be in the state. I My college roommate on the Godfather uh, to his child, uh, they live, uh, they grew up near the Chico area. So, it is just a spectacular state in every imaginable way, and really a state that has challenged this country to keep up, um, whether it is in its environmental uh, practices, whether it's in its you know, laws that they're passing that are innovative in criminal justice reform. I mean, it's really one of those states that I believe is showing a way and a possibility especially what the future looks like. It's a massively diverse state where people are finding ways to come together and build a better America together. What's the message that you want to give to Californians about why they should vote for you? What's your best case? Because it's a very liberal, progressive state. Well, now that there's, uh, you know, a a field that's tightening, uh, I hope California... Tightened to 15 candidates right now. (laughs) That's why I'm laughing. It's almost cut in half. Yes. (laughs) Look... California should know if I'm in the White House, uh, I am deeply connected to the state. The closest thing, perhaps, to a Californian in the White House we've had in a long time as a guy who owes everything to the state that, uh, you know, took my family solidly into the middle class, a state that educated my family, including me. It's uh, 
a state that I know intimately. I don't have to be educated about California issues. And if I'm in that White House, um, you're going to have somebody that's a real partner with California uh, in helping to continue a progress towards being a more just, fair, uh, uh, and empowered state. So let's dig into the issues. Californians increasingly care about climate change. And one thing that affects New Jersey, your home state, is Superfund sites. And these are places that take decades to clean up that are often still not clean up. And these are the most polluted sites in the country. Why is it taking so long to clean up your own community? Well, I've been railing about this issue for years in the United States Senate, leading on this issue. You and I have done an interview a couple of years ago on this. And look, you cannot have environmental uh, deal with the, the challenges, immediate challenges. Climate change is not a problem in the future. It's a problem right now without dealing with environmental justice as well. And I've partnered with California legislators trying to be far more aggressive in Superfund site cleanup, cleaning up abandoned mines. Because right now, for New Jersey to California, you have drinking water being threatened for so many people because of environmental hazards, whether it's lead pipes or these Superfund sites that leach into the groundwater. Uh, we have asthma rates, the number one reason kids are missing school, health reason kids are missing school in California and New Jersey across our country is things to deal with air quality. There are so many urgent issues right now that are life and death for a lot of families that are reasons why we see higher rates of, of, of uh, high correlations in these Superfund sites with people, kids being born with autism, kids being born with uh, um, uh, defects at birth. We have to deal with this crisis. And so I founded in the Senate the Environmental Justice Caucus. I've written sort of the preeminent legislation on this. But if I'm President of the United States, folks should know I am coming after polluters. I am coming after those people who are poisoning our air, our water. I am going to take responsibility for those orphaned uh, uh, Superfund sites and more to really start more aggressively making the investments and taking the executive actions we need to clean California up and our nation. Can you just talk briefly about the Superfund Polluter Pays Act and, and sort of your plan for tripling yes. the investment in that? Just because we've seen in the last couple of decades basically 20 plus billion dollars that companies would have paid into this fund yes. not going in and it's essentially being taxpayers footing the bill now instead of these companies. So yeah. can you just talk are about you, what you are a righteous man and asking questions like this gives me makes me so happy because we're not talking about this enough on the campaign trail. So look, we had a way of cleaning up Superfund sites that was for years. Even Mitch McConnell when he was a, a junior senator or a young senator uh, uh, voted for Ronald Reagan reauthorized it, which is a small tax on polluting companies, these chemical companies that are spewing things into our air, creating places like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, um, just putting a small tax on them to create a fund for us to clean it up. That tax was bipartisan supported for the longest time, but then we come into our modern era of Grover Norquist, no new taxes. It never was reauthorized. And so I'm like, this is enough. We are going to get that done. It's going to be a priority in my administration, and that's going to start giving us more revenue streams to clean these things up so they're not being fit uh, by taxpayers. But in the meantime, I'm going to make the upfront investments to get this done as well. So I want to redo that polluter pays tax. I also want to make sure we're putting public money in it because every day we waste in not cleaning up these sites is a day that more and more seniors and children and families are being poisoned. And we've seen wildfires in California being particularly a, a big issue with PG&E shutoffs recently. Uh, how would you address wildfires in, in California? We've seen some tension between the federal government and the state. Well, it's well, tension because Donald Trump is trying to blame California as opposed to taking responsibility and doing something about it. 
You cannot have a climate denier as president of the United States because not only will we not deal with the problem here, but remember, we could produce 15% of the problem currently. Even if we do everything right, we don't have a president that's leading the planet in dealing with this issue. The, the fires in California are going to get worse and worse and worse. The projections right now are untenable. So what do you do right now? So right now we have to put money into funds to deal with not only the kind of remediation uh, but uh, and fire funds that are necessary to stop this crisis from growing worse. We have to, as a federal government, when you have a national crisis, and it's not just California. It's Nevada seeing this problem. Arizona seeing this problem. There are other states that are seeing this wildfire problem in the, in the West. And by the way, Midwest has seen record flooding. We have to make investments to do the kind of remediation, whether it's flooding or fires, to begin to prevent these things from happening in the first place and deal with the aftermath when they do. And we have to deal with the long-term projections and problems with climate change. I think another big issue is housing. That's probably a top-of-mind issue. And you live in a, a different community than many other candidates running for president, which I'm sure you could touch on a little bit. but. Why, what, what is your solution to housing problems right now? I know you're calling for a 30% threshold for people not have to pay more than that. Can you talk about what you do? Yeah, let's be clear. I see this in the Bay Area, I see this in Southern California. Gentrification is, is destroying communities. And I say that because indigenous people are being marginalized and pushed out of communities they've been in, adding more expenses to their lives, they're having to commute longer distances. Housing is a California crisis, it is a national crisis. So the first thing I'm gonna do is a very big plan, which you alluded to, which is to make a much bigger in investment in renters. Right now we have a tax code that's built towards home ownership. And it's overwhelmingly that tax expenditure pushes wealth to people. On, uh, more, the majority of that is being taken by people who make more than a quarter of a million dollars a year. Well, what about the majority of Americans who are paying rent, who are struggling to stay in housing, paying 30, over 30%, 40, 50, 60% of their income just to afford apartments, which are often inadequate for the size of their family? So I'm like, enough, done. We are going to create a, just like we use the tax code for mortgage interest deduction, we're going to now create a renter's tax credit. It says if you're paying more than a third of your income in rent, you get a refundable tax credit back to your family. Uh, for that, for that, uh, between the area median rent and your 30% of your income threshold. So what that does is it lists over 10 million Americans out of poverty. It secures others. When you add that to my doubling of the uh, um, uh, the the earned income tax credit uh, and the expanding of the child care, this cuts poverty in our country well over a third. It gives 150 million Americans. Uh, basically what is in fact a pay increase. That's tax justice. That's re re reversing these toxic Trump tax cuts and focusing on the people that are struggling right now to make ends meet. One complaint I've heard is what would prevent someone from going into a very affluent neighborhood and having the federal government foot the bill on anything over 30%. And that's why we have controls. Number one, that's why we use the area median rent, um, um, which is a, uh, a very sophisticated measure that says, we're not gonna let you buy more, more house uh, than you, or rent more house than you can afford, or that is the uh, qualifying median area. So that's just not gonna happen. But yeah, it's gonna prevent we, us from having what I see in the Bay Area. Towns, when I was there at, playing at Stanford in the 90s, and I say playing at Stanford is a way to allude to my football career. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but you, you've seen these entire neighborhoods where you see minorities, low-income families being moved out. That is, that is not good housing policy. Because, and our plan, therefore, does more than just the tax credit. 
it, yeah, the, the refundable tax credit. It also does things like put real carrot and sticks to communities that are not building affordable housing. It creates uh, law, goes after you know zoning requirements that prevent affordable housing from being built. It creates more streams of revenue to assist communities that want to build affordable housing. Can you talk a little bit about where you live in the gun violence problem that you've seen? And then my follow-up is just California proposed a law and recently passed it limiting long gun purchases to one a month. Would you support something at a national level calling for that? Yeah, so clearly on the latter stuff, yes. Um, and it is because, as and all these issues we've been talking about, I'm the only person in the United States Senate, the only person running for president that for decades and now live in a low-income community, low-income black and brown community. So these are a lot of these policy issues we discuss, rental crises, uh, uh, the opioid crisis, uh, um, uh, the challenges with people working full-time jobs and still needing food stamps to feed their families. These aren't intellectual issues. These are urgencies that I live with every single day through the lives of my neighbors we're in a community where we don't confuse wealth with worth, where the dignity of families who are doing everything right but still face uphill uh, climbs, if not worse, slippery slopes that keep driving them back uh, uh, to the verges of poverty or, or below the poverty line. And gun violence is one of these things people don't think about in economic terms. It rips apart communities. It devastates uh, victims of crime. It traumatizes children. I live in a community where, God bless my mayor, we've seen 50-year lows in gun violence. But even at 50-year lows, I had uh, Shahad Smith was killed on my block last year uh, with an assault rifle. So this to me, I'm sorry, you're going to get a president that lives with a level of urgency from his lived experience in a way that I, I that, that no other person brings a sense of a greater sense of urgency than I do into the White House to deal with these issues. And when I fight as a guy who's taken on the toughest political machines in my state, taken on very powerful interests before, we've won fights before. I'm going to win this fight and bring a fight frankly, to the corporate gun lobby like they've never seen before. If Democrats don't get the Senate, though, though does any of this really matter? Well, that's the, that's the point. This is the, really the, one of the best points of my, the reason why I should be the nominee. You can't get the Senate back if you do not have a nominee on the, on the ballot that can get record turnouts in black and brown communities. Remember, Obama, if Hillary had gotten the same turnout of just African Americans that Obama got, she'd be President Hillary Clinton right now. We've seen, we saw precipitous drops in African American turnout. And let's take those three states we lost combined by 77,000 votes, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In Wisconsin alone, in the, in the Milwaukee area, there was about 70,000 less blacks that turned out to vote. We have got to, to beat, this, to beat Donald Trump and to win the key states that are black, have large black and brown communities, Arizona, North Carolina, uh, uh, Georgia, two Senate seats up in Georgia, South Carolina. The only hope we have of winning those seats is to have a nominee that's helping to inspire record turnouts. Remember, when Obama was on the ballot, we won North Carolina, had a Democratic senator. We, we, we saw a Democratic senator in Georgia. These are things we can do again if we have the right person that's nominated that can, that can resurrect that Obama coalition. Can you transition well to sort of my final topic that I think a lot of people care about, and that's electability. Yes. And one concern that you've made is these, this debate process yes. is unfair. I need a drink for this one. <laughs> can you just sort of talk about why you feel it's unfair. And you've talked a lot about having black representation on the stage. But if you look in a place like South Carolina, you're at 2% and Biden's at 33%. Why is he not an effective person for right. a black voice? Well, for, first of all, let's understand this. There has not been state debate polls 
in in well over 30 days. This has been there's been two debates since there's been state uh, qualifying polls. There's Kamala Harris dropped out since there's been two qualifying polls. We've just had this long dearth where we haven't polled South Carolina. This this election we've seen how it changes. 33 to two though. <laughs> Well, my point is, is that Joe Biden, we don't know what the, the, there are. And remember, Barack Obama was behind Hillary Clinton, way behind in African-American voters until he won in Iowa. So this is not indicative. We don't know what South Carolina voters want. The last qualifying debate poll that was there has been over a month. And we know that Barack Obama, just like me, there people right now are choosing the guy with much higher name recognition than me and the well-known brand in the Democratic Party. But if I am winning in Iowa, which we believe we're going to do, coming around to the South, it, we're, going to be able to, we're going to be able to win South Carolina. But it's even more than that. Whoever the Democratic nominee is, they're going to get 90% of the African-American vote. It is not the African-American percentage that you get. It's the turnout that you generate. And we know the only person on this ballot that can literally point to, heck, when I was in New Jersey, Chris Christie moved my election three weeks before his. He could have said it on the same day. When I was uh, on the ballot, only person on the ballot, this was a competitive race, his was a competitive race with people up and down the ballot. When I was the only person in the race, black votes spiked up uh, between 13 and 14%. When I wasn't on the ballot during a regular competitive race, it dropped down between 9 and 10%. We know we can enlarge the turnout in African-American communities and Latino communities. We've shown that in the state of New Jersey. Uh, I'm going to be the person that best does that. But as far as these polls, qualifying polls, to not have one done, CNN just did a story about this. We haven't had a period this without a statewide debate qualifying polls since the 2000s. But before that, you didn't have any polls to yeah. get on the debate stage. Yeah. And, and there were lots of polls back right. then. And, and we saw our momentum has increased. Since the last time I was on the debate stage, our number of online contributors have blasted through even the debate threshold of, of, of about a quarter of a million uh, people. We've seen our momentum increase on a lot of other objective measures. We lead in Iowa in endorsements from local elected leaders. We have what Des Moines Register and other Iowa polls call the, one of the best teams on the ground. We've seen ourselves from the last debate poll, the debate qualifying poll over a month ago, climb to number two, three or four in net favorability. So we're one of the most popular candidates in the state. This election is far from over, and the, the DNC is using debate qualifying polls when there hasn't been one in Iowa and South Carolina in well over a month. Previously, you've mulled over, mulled over donors, and uh, your campaign has previously said earlier in the fall and winter that you need a certain million dollars in order to stay in the race, and Beto O'Rourke made fun of that, saying that he would hold a kitty hostage. Yes. <laughs> but but uh, do you feel that there's still a pathway for you? Or are you actively considering dropping out? Is oh that on your mind? Quite different. I mean, just today, we just did uh, the beginning of a half a million dollar buy on Iowa TV, put it going up on commercials because we've seen such an influx of individual online contributors. There's even a backlash that we didn't make the last state. We actually had an incredible fundraising night not being on the debate stage because people are like, how can we not have your voice? So we are seeing just such great support right now. I just talked to one of my uh, digital organizers who's just saying this is still incredible. We're seeing growth every single day. So the Iowa caucuses are wide open. We have a, not just a pathway to win. We have one of the strongest campaigns on the ground in Iowa. Local media is even saying that. Local media is even criticizing the DNC. Like, how can you not have one of the strongest organizations? So we hope this continues. If people want my voice uh, to grow in this campaign, we have to make sure we continue to get online contributions. That's the lifeblood of our campaign. We're excited to see the momentum, but we need it to continue. Final two, just 
my cousin, uh, yes. <laughs> she has a fear. California votes February 3rd, same day as Iowa caucuses. And if people drop out between February 3rd and March 3rd, their votes are essentially useless. Yeah. So that's the hedge that my cousin would, would have. Are, can you say unequivocally, if you stay through the Iowa caucuses, you'll still be around March 3rd? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we're going to show people that we're going to win in Iowa, uh, upset in Iowa, and, and remember, we're in the, we finish in the top three. We become the story of Iowa. But regardless of the outcome, will you vow to be in the race on March 3rd, regardless of how Iowa turns out? I, I'm going to be in this race not just for March 3rd. We plan on being the nominee. And we know the strength of my campaign builds as we go down south. And that's why Super Tuesday is so important. And knowing California, which is the largest delegate uh, hall there is in an incredibly diverse state, California is built for my campaign. And so we really believe uh, that not only will we compete in California, but we'll win a lot of delegates there, especially because my cousins, like your cousin, uh, are going to be looking forward to voting for me. Last one. Wine Caves, criticism from the last debate. Pete Buttigieg has a lot of fundraisers. Two-thirds of his events in California have been fundraisers, 72 for Biden. And a majority of your appearances in California, or close to a majority, have been fundraisers. Are you concerned about sort of the the wealth in California playing a role in this process? So first of all, let's Democrats stop attacking each other in these kind of ways. Anybody wants to question the integrity of the vice president, Pete Buttigieg, come on. There, everybody on the stage, every one of us, wants to change, radically change campaign finance laws. It is a broken system. I was the fifth senator to take the, the End Citizens United pledge, which is to try to stop this dark money, stop this corrupting money. I've made the pledge from the beginning of the campaign, not to take lot federal lobbyist money, not to take uh, uh, corporate PAC money, not to take C-suite pharma executive money or oil company executive money. These are kind of things that we, we have to, as a party, change fundamentally. And, and so I, I just, I'm not going to be attacking the integrity of the people I'm running against. I am going to put forth a campaign finance system that can end this influence of money once and for all. We should not have a system where people can buy uh, uh, or corporations can, can, can corrupt, like it's going on right now. The reason why when we won back the House of Representatives, the first bill they put in was not a bill on, on, on a lot of the policy issues from health care uh, uh, all the way to reforming, uh, expanding Social Security, the priorities of mine. The first thing they did was things to heal our democracy, money voting rights, all those things, getting money out of politics. These are things that whoever the Democratic is, they have to lean on these things as President of the United States. But we've got to be careful because if we start attacking the character of other people that are running, when it comes time for the general election, are your supporters going to support that candidate? You've just been attacking them on character issues? Come on. The person we're running against right now is the very embodiment of the corruption that's going on in our systems right now. You saw him trying to use his, his office for his own political gain. We saw how people have used, have, I mean, the way he's running money right now, his super PACs that are out there, it's more money than all of us combined. We have a, a, a Goliath to fight. I hope to be the David uh, that takes down the Goliath, but this is no, a job bigger than any individual. We're going to have to do this as a team. 
And Team Democrats have to know. There may be some divisions amongst us, but we're going to have to unite behind whoever the nominee is and take down Donald Trump, push Mitch McConnell back to the back benches. I think I'm the best candidate to unify our diverse coalition. I'm living by the values, uh, and this is why small dollar individual contributions are the lifeblood of our campaign. I'm living by the values that I want to see embodied as, in the next president. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the reasons why my theme of my campaign is this idea of the lines of dividing us not nearly as strong as the ties that bind us. As Democrats, the ties that bind us, the urgency, the cause of our country right now is to end the dark night of Donald Trump and bring us to the light and the hope and the promise of what we as a country can do when we heal and put more indivisible back into this one nation under God. Where's your friendship with Andrew Yang developed? I've seen you in LA just chat with him and I'm just I'm great. just curious how this stems. No, he and I have been text we're <laughs> texting today. He's just a really good guy. I've known him since before uh, I ran. He's just a great guy. I just I, look, I, I'm blessed to be friends with most of the people who are running for president right now, my Senate colleagues and I, all of us are on each other's bills, uh, from Amy Klobuchar to Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders. We've all written legislation together. So friendships there. Vice President swore me in. Uh, 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 so I, I, just, I just feel blessed to be in a campaign with people that I really like, believe in, frankly, um, and that we can conduct ourselves in a way that shows that kind of mutual respect. And Andrew Yang and I, we're competitors in the primary, but we're good friends. We like each other, and he's... He rocks. He's a great guy. We'll give you the debate shout out. <laughs> yeah, he did. A really good one. Senator Booker, I appreciate the time. Thank, thank you for coming no, on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of California Nation. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find our show. Word of mouth also helps. We'll return to your podcast feed in a couple weeks with a new episode. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation. I, I have to tell you, the best restaurant for vegan now. I walk into Fat Burger, and they have what? vegan milkshakes. We're crying out loud now. It was unbelievable. Fat Burger. Fat Burger. We had a late night Fat Burger run because I know they have, they've had the Impossible Burger well before uh, Burger King. Yeah. Right. But then they have like this advertisement for vegan <laughs> shakes, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs>